For ye may have openings, but your minds can still go into the lusts of the flesh where the affections are not mortified. Therefore, take heed to that which calls your minds out of vile affections and the world's lusts, to have them renewed. The same will turn your minds to God. The same light will set your affections above and bring you to wait for the pure wisdom from God on high, that it may be justified. From the 56th Epistle of George Fox This is the Ohio Yearly Meeting Conservative Reading Presentation and Study of William Schuwen's 1675 work entitled The True Christian's Faith and Experience. These sessions are intended for conservative Quakers, Wilburite Quakers, but are open for others as well. This is session number 10. Last time we looked at chapter 5 on repentance. I need to say that that is one of the shortest chapters in this book of 20 chapters, but I consider one of the most important of this chapter 5 as well as the very last chapter. They're all important, though. I typed up a rough draft of a show note for the podcast when this eventually gets made into a podcast. I'd like to just read that so that we can just refresh your memories as to what we went over last time. And I say that because chapter six that we will be doing today, as well as seven and eight, follow up directly on that chapter five as to what's being discussed in chapter five last week on repentance. I think without further ado, I'll go to just this rough draft in order to refresh our memories. Session 9 was devoted to the reading and discussion of Chapter 5 on the true Christian's faith and experience of true repentance. I may have mentioned, I believe, that the word repentance really meant something very different than just feeling sorrow or remorse or regret for sins. It really had a very different meaning as to this need for a complete change, a transformation of one's mindset, one's whole way of thinking. And that is what type of repentance that Christ was asking for. Actually, I should also mention that in the Gospel according to Mark, in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we'll read the New Revised Standard Version here. I'll give my own translation and amplification. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. I will read that in a rough translation. After John was imprisoned, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the good news of God, saying that the time has come. It's now fulfilled. The time is the right time now. And the kingdom of God is one that is near. Repent, transform your whole minds, your whole way of thinking, and put your trust in this good news. Two of the most important topics that Jesus preached, as recorded in the Gospels, were on the kingdom of God, also called the kingdom of heaven, eternal life, or just life. We're talking about the same thing there, that state of God, that eternal divine field of divine energy where God is. And the other is repenting. The need to absolutely repent, as is mentioned in Acts and Paul and elsewhere. The need to really transform one's whole way of thinking, one's whole being, and act accordingly with that understanding. So here is just a rough summary of what we read last week. 
The true Christian believes he must obey and live according to the teachings of Christ and his apostles. The first and foremost teaching is repentance, a transformation to the power of God away from dead actions. This is the first step towards true Christianity, this turning from the power of sin to the power of God and righteousness. Righteousness is what is right in God's eyes. This is the nature and effect of a true transformative repentance. The call of God to repent is a more inward and interior call, an unmediated call, rather than an outward call through some outward physical or other means. The true Christian's mind and heart is turned from being captivated with worldly desires and cravings. He now begins to feel their sinfulness. He recognizes that his turning away from sinning is effected by God and his grace, the divine assistance of God in his every step. He is now a witness of the living voice of God within him. He obeys this inward voice of the Son of God. And having heard, obeyed, and turned away from his previous ways, he becomes a cause for wonder to his former companions as he now measures all his actions in line with righteousness. Now great trials begin. Evil spirits are more actively at work, but he is able to resist them as he presses forward to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, where his wisdom, knowledge, and glory are hidden. The titular Christian, the Christian in name only, says he believes in the same teachings on repentance. But his mind is not turned from the power of evil spirits. He has not been made alive by the hearing of the voice of the Son of God. His mind is not turned to the appearance of Christ within him to make an end to sinning, replacing sin with everlasting righteousness. He is not enabled to travel on the way of holiness to the heavenly Jerusalem. The nominal Christian deceives himself with daily sinning and an imaginary repentance. He moves from one form of egotistical self-sinning and self-righteousness to another, and from one form of invented worship to another. The nature of and ground of sin remain unshaken by the inward voice and power of the Son of God, which would lead to true repentance if obeyed. Without hearing and obeying this voice, the strength of sin remains unabated, and repentance is talked about in vain. That is my show note regarding the chapter we read last time. Are there any comments or questions on this? Henry, I was just looking through some of the notes I had made on Lewis Benson's The Six Disciple Church Lectures, and in that he talks about forgiveness, which is the other half of the coin. For the early church, forgiveness was not a removal of guilt, but it was a gift of new life. Yes, we will be talking about that, I believe, when we get to the chapter on baptism. What early friends, as well as traditional friends over the generations, have called regeneration, or otherwise also calling it being born again, the new man, the spiritual man replacing the old man. I read this because this is important in terms of understanding what we'll be talking about today and perhaps in the next couple of sessions. All right, let's go on to chapter 6. This is entitled, The True Christian's Faith and Experience Concerning Mortification, Warfare, Self-Denial, and a Daily Dying. 
these are important words in Quaker theology. Some of them perhaps are not very common words today. Mortification and mortifying have to do with causing something to die. That's what mortify means, to cause something to die, to cause sin to die is what we will be talking about. The warfare is a spiritual warfare with evil spirits, with Satan, the devil. Self-denial. This word self is a very important word, even much, much earlier than Quakers. It's the word that we would use today, we would say ego. Not as a psychological, a technical psychological word, but as it's used in common English, like someone has a big ego, that sort of sense. Denial has changed its meaning. It more often meant renouncing or rejecting, a renouncing, a, a rejection, ego renouncing, ego rejecting. We'll get to that when we read this. The daily dying, if you recall, we must pick up our cross daily. That is the inward cross, the inward mortifying, putting to death all those tendencies, all those actions, that which is in alignment with what evil spirits have caused us to do, that we have been accepting and then doing. These are the basic topics here we will be discussing in this chapter. Also, very similar stuff in the next two. And again, I will be reading and I will be translating into modern English as best I can with occasional amplifications. The true Christian, next to repentance, to this transformative change, puts his trust in the doctrine, the teaching of mortification, warfare, self-denial, and a day dying daily. And he shows his faith through his works, having heard and obeyed the call of God. This word call in Greek, in the original Greek, the koine, the biblical Greek of the New Testament, that word is related directly to the Greek word that we translate as church, meaning a congregation, an assembly of people who have been called out of the world into a, for a specific purpose or function. It originally did not refer to just a religious thing. Actually, it had more of a political sense, but it is the word ecclesia is the noun or church that we translate as church, and the verb is kaleo, same root. Having thereby turned or repented, the true Christian comes to receive the spirit of adoption, whereby he can call God Father and so comes to receive power against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Against the world, I would say that is worldliness. Against worldliness, the flesh, and the devil, which, though he has turned his back upon them and set his face towards Zion, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, yet they will follow him and pursue him and attend him with various allurements and temptations, in order to turn him back again, and thus will continue laying baits and snares in hopes of prevailing over him until a death is witnessed to the carnal, the physical mind, the worldly mind, and transgressing nature, which is prone to receive, to accept the temptation. Therefore, the true Christian, having come to a true sight and sense of the strength and subtlety of the enemy, Satan, evil spirits, watches and wars in the spirit against him and obeys the apostles 
the Apostle Paul's exhortation, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, which is Colossians 3.3. And if ye through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live, Romans 8.13. Again, causing to be dead, causing to die, those deeds, actions, works, acts that are not in alignment with God's will. So, the true Christian witnesses a dying or mortifying daily, causing something to die, of that nature and mind which has had a life in sin, until it is mortified or killed, until he comes to witness that saying fulfilled, quote, from Paul, death is swallowed up in victory, end quote. The strength of it having been taken away, till which is affected, he, the true Christian, remains in warfare like a good soldier following his captain, his forerunner, Christ, conquering and to conquer until a perfect, a complete victory is obtained. I should say much of this, what we are reading here in the understanding, as far as I know, you do not see really in other theologies from other Christian denominations. At least I'm not aware of it and that he may not fail or come short in this warfare and work of mortification, putting sin to death, causing sin to die. He keeps his eye always upon his captain, his leader, his pioneer, i.e. Jesus Christ, and his ears open to that voice that at first made him alive and called him to repentance, to a true repentance, to a true transformation and his mind focused upon that Holy Spirit of grace that has wrought for him up until now, which makes self, which makes ego of no reputation. Ego cannot have the fame for it, basically, and which buries self, ego, in all his acquirements and completion in the death of the cross, of the inward cross. The cross is causing that ego to die as not being fit or worthy to be concerned in the work of regeneration, of being born again. That's a difficult sentence, but do you see what he's saying there? He's kind of saying that it's not the flesh that puts the flesh to death. It must be the spirit that puts the, the flesh to death. Right. The flesh cannot put the spirit to death. Spirit is of a different order. So often we kind of pat ourselves on the back for something we've done. And in this particular undertaking of repentance, ego has no place. It is the grace of God, the assistance of God that eliminates that false ego, that worldly ego. And the true Christian well knows that there is no possibility of being a disciple, that is, a student, and follower of Christ further than the daily inward cross to ego is taken up. We really need to chip away at that false ego day after day. It's not going to go away all at once necessarily. He, the true Christian, meets with no greater enemy in his journey to God than self, than egotistical thoughts and imaginings, self-willing, egotistical willing, wishes and running, and egotistical consultation, self-consultation and self-working, egotistical performances on our part. 
which if he does not watch against and rule over and keep under by that hand and power that has appeared for his deliverance and has wrought it in a measure, he again may be entangled and ensnared and driven back into that pit in which there is no water. This may keep his body under, lest while he preached to others, he himself became a castaway. I was saying even today that false religion is characterized by man-made conception of what religion and righteousness is, man-governance yeah. of such, and man-powered of such, i.e. the flesh. Yes. And instead, we should turn to the Spirit, to be governed by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, and what the Spirit gives us a conception of, and to be powered by the Spirit, to be lifted by the Spirit over the darkness. We have to subject ourselves to the Spirit. We have to obey the Spirit. We have to be in alignment with what the Spirit is saying. I'm trying to think of various words of saying the same thing here, what Chad just said. Therefore, he, the true Christian, continues in the doctrine, in the teaching of self-denial, ego renouncement, ego renouncing, ego rejection, until self, the ego, is rejected. And in the putting off the old man with his deeds, with his actions, till they are wholly put off. Just a comment here, putting off so often in the New Testament, there are many references to clothing and to putting on clothing, taking off clothing. And what is so often referred to as items of clothing are more spiritually understood to be one's actions, one's deeds, one's works, one's acts. That's what we're talking about, putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And that's the same kind of thing. The old man with his actions need to be totally taken off. And when he has done all, to stand still and abide with the same powerful hand that has performed all these things in him and for him, in the true Christian and for the true Christian, the powerful hand of Christ. And to it, to that powerful hand, the true Christian attributes the glory and gives praise forever. Now, what about the titular Christian, the nominal Christian, the Christian in name only? I think for myself, as perhaps so many others here, I would think uh, often will feel like they are that nominal Christian that's being talked about here at times whenever we get to this last section in each of these chapters. But let's continue. Now, the titular Christian, the Christian in name only, professes the doctrine, the, the teaching about mortification, causing things to die, sin to die. And he talks about a dying to sin and a warring against sin and of self-denial, ego rejection, and putting off the old man and taking up the daily cross, the daily inward cross, etc. But how does he answer his, how does his profession correspond with what he's saying, basically? What course does he take to mortify sin, to put sin to death, to cause it to die, while he does not believe or trust in the light, the light of Christ, which shines in his heart, in his whole inner being, that reveals it, that reveals sin, or in the manifestation of the Spirit given to him to mortify and destroy sin, or in the power of God within him, which gives strength to war against it, 
or to overcome sin within. Neither has he received the spirit or accepted the spirit of adoption, whereby he is enabled to call God Father, Romans 8.15. But he is unacquainted and ignorant of him in that relation. Yet he has learned through tradition, as the impenitent and unconverted Jews did, to call God Father, John 8.41, whose knowledge of him was taught by the precepts through the precepts of men. It sounds as if other denominations have these same concepts, but they think that they can get to the right place through rules and through preaching and through words, rather than the actual presence of Christ present to them, enlightening them. Yes, they do have these words like warring against sin and repentance, but their understanding is so different from the basic understanding that friends had originally and continued, the faithful friends that continue that understanding since the 17th century. It seems to me that they have the escape hatch, that really Christ did all of this for us vicariously on the cross. Yes. And they don't really expect to succeed in mortifying the ego or becoming uh, sinless. They, quote, believe, unquote, that they're going to get in because they believe and they'll get into heaven and be forgiven just because of that 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 is a intellectual very concept point. that they have that's a very important point conrad they believe because they say they accept that jesus did everything for them but friends have never understood that to be enough we're the other half of the coin we need to obey and listen yeah. and do what christ says in my reading this morning i think in colossians i could be wrong where paul says that he has to make up what was left over of christ's suffering yes that what what Christ did on the cross wasn't the full job. We have to finish the job. We have that physical death of Christ Jesus on the cross, and it is a serious model for a true Christian to put to death that sinful nature within himself, because Christ was without sin and yet physically condemned to die. Christ Jesus came to do away with sin, to take us out of that darkness and bring us into light, to God, away from Satan. And just accepting Jesus in words as our Savior and Lord and whatever other words we want to use is insufficient. It's not enough. The Jews had all of the temple rituals to follow. And according to Moses and Deuteronomy, if they followed all of those rituals to the letter, they would have life. So if they already had everything that they needed, why did what else was it? Christ didn't come to forgive us because they could already be forgiven by giving up their pigeons or their goats or whatever was necessary. Christ came, as you're saying, Henry, to teach us the way to become righteous, to leave sin behind. Yes, and Paul says, I'm forgetting exactly where at the moment, that doing everything the law of Moses required was still insufficient in terms of doing away with sin. We had all these outward ways of doing away with sin in terms of sacrifice, offerings, scapegoats, you name it, in the temple. But that didn't make anyone holy just because of those actions. And I think that's the point. To be forgiven for past sins is not the goal for God for us. It's for us to get beyond sin. He doesn't want to just forgive us. He wants us to be cleaned up. That's the goal of holiness. A goal we're talking about here is, is becoming holy. 
again, hagios is the Greek word, and it's a translation of the Hebrew word, which basically holiness meant setting or making something holy, sanctifying something, was making it separate from the world, different from the physical, material world. The understanding is that God is not a material, physical God. Hallowed be thy name. The basic nature and name of God is holy. It's something to be held as hallowed. It's separate from the world. It's immaterial. It, and the holiness here has that sense. And in, in, in being holy, one's actions are going to be coming in line with a spiritual understanding of what God wants not what feels good in the material world. Yeah, the references you wanted were in Hebrews 9 and 10, probably Hebrews 10 for the, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Ah, yes, thanks. That's what I was thinking of. People do the same thing today, I think, in terms of maybe words or whatever. Uh, I want to remind friends again that with early Christians, Basically, in becoming a Christian, it was expected that you would sin again ever after you became a Christian. And also a reminder, I, wherever I read this, that uh, at least at some point in early Christianity, it was a three-year process in becoming a Christian. You just didn't suddenly become a Christian saying, I want to be a Christian. And you knew becoming a Christian could mean your own death. You really had to go pretty deep in terms of understanding what it really meant to be a follower of Christ, a disciple, a student of Christ. It wasn't just saying, oh, I want to become a Christian. I like the way they are. It was a much more serious thing. I got a verse here, Galatians 5, 16 and part of 17. He says, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Yeah, that's totally in line with what we're reading here. Almost every other sentence here has some reference to something in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's the way friends have understood what is required on our part that is so important as followers of Christ. Henry, about an hour ago, you had me look up portions from the works of Fox where he uses the word heaps. Oh, yes. What Fox has to say is the people were all on heaps because they had only words and had departed from the power to accomplish what the scriptures talk about. And in another place in the journal, Fox has said something and the priests respond, what, have we not had the gospel all this while? And Fox says, no, you have not because you have departed from the power, for the gospel is the power of God, the power of God to overcome sin, to be made children of God. Thanks. That is exactly what I was looking for. Thanks for looking that up for me. Yeah. We're talking about power. So often, I think, and, oh, I just assume so many Christian denominations, we're talking about words, or we, they can talk about the power, but it's not felt, or it's not the depth you need to go to really change, to transform. It is pretty deep unconscious things and that may take a while or it may or if, even if it doesn't take a while it can be extremely hard and painful because we don't like to look at the dark side of ourselves of our egos <laughs> okay let me see let's finish this paragraph here and though they the jews accounted themselves to be children of god by virtue of this traditional knowledge 
received from their forefathers, rabbis and doctors of the law, teachers of the law. Yet Christ Jesus, the great doctor, teacher, remember we, we speak of doctors of philosophy, that's doctor was the Latin word for teacher. Yet Christ Jesus, the great teacher and righteous judge and true teacher, told them they were quite the contrary. Specifically, they were of their father, the devil. They were children of their father, the devil. Jesus wasn't mincing his words here. It's uh, so pernicious, right? Because like the Pharisees of old, people thought that they were the paragons of righteousness and of godliness. Yes. But in fact, it was the exact opposite because they were going by man conception, man powered and man governed religion. And they were looking outwardly all the time. We have to follow all 613 rules and regulations of the law of Moses and all the unwritten laws and the uh, uh, rules in the oral tradition of the Jews. They were focusing again on all the outward, the external, the physical, the ritual stuff, which one needs to remember that at one point, this is what God commanded them to do in the Old Testament. But we need to always remember that with Jesus, there is a new covenant, a new testament. Testament and covenant are the same word in the Greek of the Bible. This is a new way of doing things, a, so to speak, new improved way. God's way that is required of us now because Christ has revealed this to us. The higher dispensation versus the earlier dispensations, the earlier ways of doing things that were required at one time and God the Father had demanded. But this is, this is the New Testament, the new covenant, the new agreement with God, the new pact. So the titular Christian, while unbegotten to God, not having been given birth to by God, in his impenitent, unregenerate state, having read the Holy Scriptures and the traditions of his fathers, the titular Christian furnishes himself with the profession, with the confession of the doctrines, the teachings of the gospel, just as the Jews did of the law, the law of Moses. While specifically sin is reigning in his mortal body, while the old man, with his deeds, his actions and acts, his behavior, are unput off, not put off, and while self-will, egotistical wishing, self-wisdom, egotistical wisdom, and self-ego in all its properties is not rejected, and while he, the titular Christian, is a stranger to the inward cross of Christ, and so he does not take it up and follow Christ, but lacks power to make sin dead, lacks power to war against worldliness, flesh, fleshly desires, cravings, and the devil. So while the titular, the nominal Christian, talks of mortification and dying to sin, sin is living in him and is increasing as his days increase. And instead of overcoming it, he is overcome daily by sin. And while he professes self-denial, ego rejection, nothing but self-ego is acknowledged. Ego wishes and runnings, ego worship, and he offers the offerings of Cain. 
ego seeks and knocks and strives to enter, but is not able. Until this willing, this desiring and running and power of ego is rejected, condemned and brought down and made to have no fame, no reputation, no repute in himself by the powerful working and operation of the spirit of God within, no one can witness a being dead to sin or have victory over sin or be a disciple, student of Christ Jesus or follow Christ in the work of regeneration. Let them profess what they will. Unless this is known, their profession is a lie, and they deceive their own souls. This is the word of truth to all the titular Christians upon the face of the earth of whatsoever name or denomination. You can see how this would happen to people, because if a person picked up the Bible, the New Testament, and read it without help from Christ, they could just see it as a new set of rules, just like the rules of the Old Testament. And without Christ within, without knowing of Christ within, knowing that he was guiding them reading it, it could just be one more set of rules. And I see people who see it that way, and it's very confusing for them to know what these rules mean, since if you take it as rules, it's, it can often be pernicious nonsense. And look how it varies from one person to another who may just pick up the Bible. How many thousands of different Christian denominations are there around the world? There's a problem with that. It's because, as Chad has been saying, they want to use Scripture to give themselves power instead of having Scripture teach them to rely on the power of Christ. Yes. Well, this is the end of this chapter. We're going to more depth about repentance and how to repent, how to have this transformation, and how it occurs with God's aid. We will see more of this in the next two chapters as well. I'm thinking about the audience to whom Schuon was writing, which was largely a Church of England audience, and certainly others also, who believed that if they simply showed up and did the taking of bread and wine and followed all the sacraments, that they were in good shape. Yeah. That they didn't have to make themselves vulnerable before the Lord. I've been taken by a couple of things. One of them is Conrad's statement a few weeks ago, that in some ways we're a little bit closer to it today when we talk about a relationship with Christ, which would have been very foreign in the 17th century. But what tends to happen is that we make then those words of Jesus come into my life, they become our fire insurance policy, and we stop almost all the vulnerability thinking, well, whatever I do, it's going to be forgiven, and I don't really have to worry about changing or letting myself be open to the Lord's teaching, because if you're in a Calvinist place, I'm eternally secure. So I'm, I can do whatever I want, and I will do whatever I want because that's my nature. The other side of it is, for some of us in the holiness tradition, have made holiness our God and have made what we do, and we don't do this, we don't do that, we don't do this, so therefore we're good. Instead, Christ is acting for not a, a series of don'ts, but he's saying to do the exact opposite of expand it. Uh, love those who would persecute you and spitefully use you. It's not just about not killing, but it's about embracing a far greater truth, and that's realizing that you have died with me, and in dying with me, that that's a process now that we start and continue to be vulnerable and transparent before me. 
And that ain't easy, as has been said numerous times. As I was worshiping tonight, I saw a vision of a hand held out. And the invitation is, take my hand, walk with me, with childlike faith and simplicity. It's so easy to get caught up in following of religion, shall we say, instead of walking with him and letting him lead us and listening to him and going where he wants us to go. The simplicity of knowing Christ can be replaced so easily by just these intellectual ideas or these formula to follow that come from men. And that's why we're to love mercy and do justice and walk humbly with God, because the humbly is without ourselves. We're supposed to be humble and not think of ourselves with God. It's not about us anymore. Getting back to something that Kim said reminded me of what Paul says that he has been crucified with Christ. I am no longer living. The I in Greek is ego. The Latin word and the Greek word are the same word for I, E-G-O. I, my ego, (laughs) is no longer alive. Uh, And by using that word, he's emphasizing it because you don't need to say the word I in Greek because the verb form itself will indicate that it's I. I, my ego, is no longer alive, but rather... Christ is alive in me, and he's following what Christ is telling him to do within himself. That's a very frequently quoted passage in Quaker works. The next section is the true Christian's faith and experience concerning sanctification, washing, and cleansing from sin and corruption. Sanctification means to make holy, to make something holy, to make someone holy. Keep in mind the word baptism has to do with dipping something into a liquid. So we will be talking about that. Any further comments or questions? Just reflecting on what we've been saying, especially what Karen was saying about a new set of rules by reading the New Testament scriptures. And I was thinking of the passage in Isaiah where I believe it's 42 or one of those chapters in the early 40s. I will give him as the covenant. So this is something entirely different, that we do not have a new set of rules, but we have Christ who is the covenant. And that is to be known within us. I can't recall what Quaker I've read recently or reread who was saying, you know, oh, maybe it was Barclay. Christ didn't come to set up a new set of rules. That's not what it was about. It was repentance, this transformation. Those two verses, 14 and 15 in chapter 1 of Mark, as far as we know, that's the oldest written gospel. Those two lines are sort of the whole focus of Jesus and what we need to do to repent and believe in this good news, put our trust in this good news of the kingdom of God is one that is near. As it says in Luke 17, verse 20, 21, the kingdom of God is within us, within everyone, because there Jesus is saying, within you in the plural, and he's speaking to the Pharisees. So even in these Pharisees, the kingdom of heaven, that state of God is even within, although they are nowhere near it, they aren't even aware of it. This was a primary focus of Jesus in his preaching. So often the parables, which mean comparisons in Greek illustrations, are about the kingdom of God, comparing the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven to this or that. The kingdom of God is like a man going out and sowing seeds, or the kingdom of God is like 
blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on. He's trying to explain it in comparisons to his folks that he's speaking to, trying then to get them to understand through these comparisons, through these parables. Well, thank you all. I'll turn off the recording. Okay. <laughs> That's Nancy's job to tell me. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote in our introduction was from the 56th epistle of George Fox. A link to this epistle can be found in the show notes. We welcome feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes. Please email us at oymconservative at gmail.com.